You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and here's the second half of my recent interview with Richard Herring. Let's talk about your your stand-up then. Let's talk about your stand-up persona. Yeah. Um, what sort of comic when you when you came back to stand up or even in the in the in the very early days what sort of comedian did you think you'd be and is that anything like the comedian that you actually are I don't say I'm not really convinced I've uh, nailed it and and I think in terms of who I am on stage and I, I almost deliberately and again I think this might be a reason that um, I'm harder to pin down in that there is a through line of, of sort of childishness and erudite erudite childness throughout what I'm doing and there's a sort of sex obsession I suppose throughout all mm. of it and that, that, that sort of childishness but each of the shows I do are quite different than each other and you know some of them would be more full on silly and some of them would be quite political or serious and you know the, the I suppose the through line is myself and a lot of it is, is internally looking at, at me um, but I don't think it's not like I've just created a persona that then can just you can be applied to yeah, situations yeah, yeah. yeah so it's slightly different so like we're all going to die this year's show is quite a different show than Talking Cock which is more of kind of le- a lecture all about sex and this is a bit more of a considered serious show it's a bit I'm supposed to we're, what is love anyway and we're all going to die might be a bit similar but uh, Hit and Stash is very different than Crisis in the Bike which is very different than No Fucking 40 you know so it's it's I suppose it's, it's I tend to find an honesty in, about myself and looking internally in myself mostly um but I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I, when I started out doing stand the first time in 1989, 1990, I was sort of torn between doing stuff I thought was funny and doing stuff that would get me booked mm-hmm. and therefore fell, usually fell very much between those yes, two stories. Okay. I did neither. And, you know, I either just compromised the interesting stuff I was doing or was just, yeah, it wasn't right for what they were doing. So I, I thought I had an odd thing where, you know, maybe one in three gigs would go pretty well and one in three gigs would go abysmally badly. Okay. And usually the, the, the owner of the club would see the bad one and I didn't, you know, I struggled on for a couple of years doing it and wasn't really enjoying it. And I didn't know. I'd, sometimes I did a character, sometimes I did a kind of old man character, sometimes I did just this Somerset okay. character. Um, and sometimes I was myself. So I was really sort of struggling to work out what I was doing with it and then I think when I came back to doing it I just sort of decided I was going to do whatever I, th- I thought I don't care mm. it doesn't matter if I travel around I just I, weirdly I got lo- I booked myself into loads of gigs all around the country none in London I think Dan Topolsky just gave me a, a list of all his contacts but they were all the non-London ones I just emailed them all thinking oh you know would, could you give me a gig and thinking most of them would say no or mm-hmm. but they obviously all went yeah you're Rich Tang yeah you can have a gig yeah, I, thought, yeah. <laughs> I thought I might have to do open spots again you know but sure. they actually so I had this leg up but everyone booked me but I just took every gig I was offered without really mm-hmm. even looking at the map and then just drove around the country yep. doing these £100 gigs wherever for a, for a year um, you know and I'd drive back from Yorkshire every night and mm-hmm. and then I might be you know, there was no even rhyme or reason to what I was doing but I, the, my decision was just to do what I thought was funny um, uh, regardless and it wasn't really uh, suitable a lot of it for uh, stand-up clubs but it kind of nearly in, always worked. In what well, way? it was just because it wasn't gags. It was like something was like yeah. someone like Jogger or me talking about Rudyard Kipling for fifteen minutes. You know, it was sort of odd. 
mm-hmm. subject matter and not and, and that in fact that's why someone like Geography Routine became so long was because it would have this bizarre reaction where uh, like a third of the audience loved it and a third of the audience were furious <laughs> I remember so, seeing that show yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was but they were like but in a club less so in Ed, you know, in Edinburgh yeah. it didn't happen quite as much it still happened a bit but in, in clubs it was like men like just shouting with absolute anger at me that I was daring to carry on doing this and then me calmly discussing with them <laughs> why it was funny or why it wasn't all you know whether I was wrong or they were wrong and uh, and so that you know it's, I, I guess I just kind of thought well let, you, you sort of find your way I suppose and I think something like Shogun I, I, it's a show that I really liked it kind of got some of the worst reviews I've ever had it got some got, you know, got some good reviews it's the best selling of any of my DVDs weirdly I don't know why really? yeah um, on, the, on the Go Faster Stripe. It's one of the earlier ones, so it might just be that people bought that and never bought anything again. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting show. It's a really brave, and they got, it, was, it was the Daily Telegraph worst comedy experience of 2005, mm-hmm. which I'm astonished at, because I think even if you didn't like it, you would go, well, I can see he's attempting something interesting and exciting yes. there. Yes. If you're a comedy critic, and to actually say it's just worse than any other Yes, comedy. absolutely. It's I mean, by no means the laziest no, comedy no, experience, no, is it? Yeah. It's sort of, you know, it's, 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 there's interesting stuff in it, um, even if you don't like it. But uh, so, uh, but then I think, I've just each year I've just sort of, I've, I think they, the shows became a little bit, uh, I mean, someone like Menage M was a bit more kind of stand-up friendly, I think. I think I sort of got through playing around and thought well, let's actually just try and be funny I mean there's an element where I think stretching stuff is funny and doing anti-comedy is funny but I also think you've got a I just sort of got fed up with the number of people basically doing comedy about comedy and mm-hmm. and thinking and which includes myself and thinking well actually the true thing is not to just take the piss out of a bad comedy but to try and be to actually to, be good to, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's very easy to be cynical and snide about everyone else but I think actually so I think I sort of moved a little bit in that direction but I just really like with stand-up uh, and with the Edinburgh shows especially because I, I mean with stand-up I've tended to not write much new material that I can use in clubs and so mm. uh, it tends to you know the same sort of 45 minutes goes on a bit of a loop until I get bored of it if I'm doing stand-up clubs which I don't do very much anymore but I really like putting together a, an Edinburgh show and being able to take more interesting ideas and more serious ideas and playing with Mm. the audience's reaction you know I really liked in What Is Love Anyway the end of that show where I did a routine about my grandma having Alzheimer's disease which was you know which just really the audience were kind of made, made them cry cry, made them laugh and then it made them cry a bit and then it made them laugh straight away again and cry with you know and cry with laughter and tears mm. and just the the way that kind of you know the, the, the theatricality of that routine and, and of learning how to make that work with an audience and how to play an audience like that I think is was really exciting so I think it's it's not just about um, it's not just about coming up with good jokes it's about kind of I think with those Edinburgh shows you can sort of play around with theatricality and work out what you can do in terms of being serious as well as being funny and mm-hmm. I, I, I really want to be you know I, I like being funny all the way through I don't really like to do Ten minutes of serious stuff, or ten minutes with no laughs in it, and I really like a show where people are laughing all the way through. But I, I suppose I'm trying to make with my shows, I'm trying to make people think about issues, and I suppose as well that I don't, um, I'm not giving answers to stuff. I think I'm just asking questions. Really. Okay. So I, I think that's I think that's what I'm, I, I, I like about it. I don't really like comics who tell you what to think or say you have to believe the same as me or you know sure. you're wrong. I I kind of think. I'm as confused as anyone else about all this stuff and let's hear some of the crazy stuff I've thought about it and let's take I like taking the logic of things like religion and you know the afterlife at the moment the idea of the afterlife if you look if you just think about it for a second it's such a it's ludicrous that grown ups believe it and haven't thought sure. through that just the practicalities of being eternal is just awful you know that yeah. people go oh I can't bear dying so I'm going to imagine that I'm, I live for eternity which is much worse than yeah. <laughs> that would be just a, a living hell you know an eternity without your body so you think about these things but it's not like giving an I'm not saying I know what happens when you die I should sure. say I think I know what happens when you die I think you die but uh, you know uh, there's no way any of us know that so I, th- I think it's it's more about making people think about the questions and thinking about politics and religion and why they think it and and I hope with most of these shows as well that it's not you know Christ on the bike I think comes Jesus comes out of that show pretty well even though all the Christians protested it they didn't mm-hmm. whatever watch the show mm-hmm. but it's about having actually in, looked at the subject and thought about it 
and rather than just knee-jerk one way or the other to kind of... I suppose that routine talk about, the liberals versus racists, who's more racist, the, the liberals or the racists. Mm. I, what I love about that routine is it's sort of ambiguously not coming down much on either side. I mean, it's sort of coming down on the side that racism's <laughs> a bad thing, but it's also saying liberalism could be a bit of a shitty thing sure. as well uh, in its own way, uh, and also just playing around with that those kind of just the logic of the way we think about stuff and in, and in the in the makeup of in the structure of one of your hour shows or hour or more yeah um, how much of it is in, in the creation of it how much of it do you go well that that's the thing that says something and it's okay for that bit just to be a daft bit or just yeah. to be jokes I think nearly all of it's part of it though I mean in the end it kind of it sort of happens very organically and I'll sometimes just chuck stuff around and then suddenly see the link uh, rather than kind of planning it and then that, but I like the organic way. Most of the when you do a show when, at the end of a tour, I'm always in a you're sort of in, in your mind is the next show. But I've hardly ever started. I nearly always finish the show before I start the next one. And it's in your mind, and you're doing the show thinking, "How the fuck did I write this? This mm. is you know the, the, this is so multi layered, and everything calls back, and I can never mm. do every year. I think I can I can't do something <laughs> as good as that. I can't. How did I? You know, you can't even remember doing, it, but it happens very organically, and you mess around with stuff. And the call, I think you can't force the callbacks and you can't force the connections but they sort of appear mm. out of nowhere so it's sort and of and that, that's as a result of doing it and saying it yeah, out yeah. loud and doing it and then thinking about it and then you know suddenly these and, and some, at its best my Edinburgh shows I'll create something on stage mm. that will then either turn into a routine or come out as a routine I think that that kind of white hot heat of being on stage when you're really in the zone you can create much better than sitting you know if you're sitting typing at a typewriter to computer um you can do that for days and nothing can happen but if you're really focused the audience are really behind you and you hit an idea and then it just goes bang and you know you've got either the big start of a routine for tomorrow when you do it the next day or sometimes the whole thing comes out or sometimes yeah. you grasp that kind of connection to something else that makes it make sense and so at the moment you know some weirdly even these very disparate routines I've got at the moment these they are that's all it's sort of starting to swirl around. It's like a, you know, <laughs> sure, a universe sure. thing where it's swirling around the centre and then suddenly it kind of comes and forms into a, a planet or a sun or something and it sort of starts to work. And I'm at that stage now where it feels, you know, three weeks away that it feels like I'm on the edge of maybe finding out how this show's going to be. Okay, but, okay. But there's loads of things I haven't even tried out yet. And from the, from the raw starting points, are you... Um are you just sort of thinking about stuff and then taking that thinking onto the stage? Are you writing bullet points? Are you writing out long it changes, it changes different with each one. At this year's show, I think the reason the show's going a bit slower is because a lot of them are blogs that I'm then reading out because they're quite complicated and densely written and sort of need to be. I haven't got off the paper with them yet. Okay. But sometimes, like with the Oh Fucking 40, I remember... I just went on and told the story about how I had a fight the day before, basically the yeah. first preview. I didn't have anything to talk about. And then I just told this story and I came off stage and went, well, yeah, uh, that was too long and it needs a joke there and there and there. But actually, this is a really good <laughs> matter, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I told the story and, and then by then doing it over a few nights, usually five or six nights, I think you kind of it starts to become a routine. And then, mm-hmm. But you keep ch- chipping away at it. I, don't, I, never, I never give up. I never think that's perfect. Once it gets to the stage we're on tour, a lot of it's trying to work out how's the best way to say each word and what tone and what speed and what volume okay. uh, and just the cadence of it and see if I change, if I slow down here or change the emphasis, can I make this joke work better? But I'm constantly right at the end still trying to improve and come up with new stuff. Okay. And usually that won't be very much and usually it'll be about just noticing one day going, that joke isn't going as well as it can, what can I do with it till tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And then I won't think about it until I get to it the next day and then go, oh yeah, I was going to think about this. And then I'll try something else, and then it does become more like a song. It becomes, you know, talking cock, especially. I've done it so many times, but I was still coming up with stuff. But it was, you know, there's bits that become very much like I know exactly how this, mm. exactly how this has to go for this to work as well as it can. But some bits you, but even then, sometimes you go, I'm bored, let's try and see mm. if I say it in a different way or change. Changing a word can turn, turn it around. But right at the beginning, I think it's just about. Um, you know, it varies. Sometimes it's sometimes it's going on and going. Well, let's take a pump with this story. So, like, a, a, I ad libbed a thing in one of the rich, the Less Square Theatre podcasts of um, about Nelson Mandela and Prince Philip, which I've never written down, and then that's become just a little routine that I'll I can do at the moment. I don't know if I'll be able to do it if even them do die. Um, uh, but you know, that's that's completely off paper, and I've got it, and it's I okay. don't know how it came about. I don't know either, but I know sure. all the bits that have to be in it. Uh, whereas some of the other bits are kind of long things I've written that I still haven't kind of got quite got my head around um, and then I think once you're off paper you can really start 
dicking around with it but yeah I mean, even last night there was that scene but I keep forgetting to record it and then I don't listen back to if I do record it. <laughs> so there's loads, there's loads of bits that come up. That's you, familiar. You, yeah. you hit and you've got something and then you completely forget about them. Yeah. Usually if they're good enough, they seem to come back into your head sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'll forget a whole routine that I've been doing in a stand-up set and then for months and then go, oh, God, how come I'm not doing that bit anymore? Sure. Sure. I just forgot that it existed. Your, your, your persona on stage, Richard Herring, the comedian. Yeah. What's the, what's the difference? What are the key differences between you, the person, and you, the comedian? Um... I'm not, I think increasingly not that much with the stand-up shows. Um, it, he's a bit more um, uh, pedantic and, uh, you know, and, and I guess I pretend to... I, I really like to take an idea and, and um, that's a bit pedantic or stupid and, and follow it through. So at the moment mm. I'm doing a bit about... Um, People, when people jumped out of the World Trade Center, some people argued they'd commit suicide mm. when the, you know, obviously the, when the, when the planes hit. Do you remember that? Uh, and yeah, and that because uh, they commit suicide, they'd go to hell, uh, and that wouldn't, that wouldn't, um, right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that if I thought that I would have kept quiet about it. But so I'm doing a routine about that. But I kind of like taking the logic, and so the logic of the comedian, on, the the character on stage, yeah. is to say that the people who stayed inside the building committed suicide because yes. there was some hope if you jumped out, you might jump yes. on land in a lot. Yes, got you. Okay, so, so I don't logic. think that, but I then you know, so that's different than me. But I sure. kind of I like being, I like taking that parenting point and turning it around, and then going, no, actually, it's the people who, the firemen mm. and stuff who stayed inside the building, uh, they committed suicide by being in a fire. Yeah. and not trying to escape from it so I think they've all gone to hell so it's, ta- it's taking okay, so it's, ta- yeah, so it's yeah, taking that it. idea and turning it around yeah. so I don't I obviously don't think that uh, but it's kind of fun to so uh, it's fun to be a ca- be a character who, who think you know I suppose even that liberals racist thing it's, it's the character espousing a ridiculous idea that I don't yes. think in order to make a yes. point about something that's, that's interesting what, what do you think you're what do you feel your status is when you're dealing, when you're on stage dealing with the crowd? And the, the reason I ask, sort of what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is, um, I, for a couple of years, was in, uh, well, for as many years, I was in a street performing double act. Yeah. And for a couple of years, I was in a sketch show slash stand-up sort of double act. And in both of those situations, I found that the, the dynamic of the double act often ended up with me being almost as if not a straight man but a straighter man than I'd anticipated yeah and it kind of I, I sort of felt like oh I'm I really I like being solo because I'm the whip smart one I'm yeah. the best one in the room but often what I sort of what I discovered of my my strongest suit you know the funniest truth about me if you like when working with someone else I sort of ended up being the lower status one yeah, yeah. and I wondered about your obviously the you know you look back at photos of the double act with you and Stu he was looking cool and flicking yeah. his hair around and smoking a cigarette and you seemed happy to play what you previously called you know the character of Richard Herring yeah, yeah, yeah. and I just wonder how if that was the if that relationship was the crucible of your you performing up and down the country on stages yeah. how much of your how much of your persona now was formed in having to be the the less cool one I think less I think the problem for me coming out of the double act after having because weirdly when we started off we, when we did university I was probably the highest status I, did, I played all the okay. highest status characters and I was the kind of cocky sarcastic one in it um, and then for whatever reason I can't remember why we why we did it this way but I kind of actually had some knocks in the, for my first couple of fringes and I think I actually lost that that cockiness that okay. I been and the sarcasm and stuff and actually I think probably I became a bit of a lower status person and then we kind of realised that would work better in the double act I suppose and the sort of versions of ourselves um, but having come out of it I kind of felt that I you know Stuart was able to be Stuart in either really Stuart, the Stuart Lee in the double act sure. wasn't that different than the the Stuart Lee stand-up stuff. I mean, Stuart was never was much more committed to his solo stuff even then and so it was you know we were both writing both all of it so it wasn't you know it wasn't like I was writing my stupid bits and he was writing no sure okay so we were all writing we were both writing all of it um but I felt you know I had to I had to recreate something pretty different I mean there's there are elements of that the the sort of sex obsession and the Mm. slight perversion perverse element again which isn't really I'm very uh, I mean I'm quite obsessed with sex so that's true but I'm not I'm very sort of vanilla and straight-laced. Yeah, okay. like, so, so I'm very different. I don't like having sex with animals and <laughs> drinking their milk or any of that stuff. Uh, but, but it's also fun to play around with, you know, that idea that me trying, you're trying to cover some horrible secret or something that you've got. But um, so I, I felt I had to re 
you know, redis- rediscover what I was going to be on stage without Stu. And I think okay. both of us, there's an element where the other one still plays a part in our. We often both of us have still have conversations within our solo stuff in which certainly in studio yes yes okay he does my voice when he's being stupid and he's doing a stupid conversation (laughs) and we would certainly both do you know that that similar sort of thing because we both you know we both we've learned to do comedy together and we Mm. learn from each other it's sort I mean I think that's that's the odd thing about it that some certainly when I started doing stand up again and I knew this would be an issue but people even journalists were going oh you know it's very derivative of Stuart Lee you know you're kind of going well What's to say Stuart Lee isn't derivative of me? You know, you don't know who came up with this stuff. So, sure. you, know, you know, I wouldn't mind if people said it's like Lee and Herring, but like sometimes people were going, it's like Stuart Lee. Yes. It, almost like they either didn't know we'd work together or that they just, because they'd seen Stuart doing solo stand-up first, that meant he'd done that first. Yes. So that was, so it was, I kind of felt I had to kind of get away from that. And there were times where I was thinking, well, this, I really like this routine. Uh, uh, but it's a, it's a bit too much like something Stuart would do, even though, you know, possibly the thing that Stuart did... So something like the All Things Bright and Beautiful sketch that Stu used to do came out of me laughing at uh, All Things Bright and Beautiful. I told him pretty much all of the aspects of that song that were ridiculous. He was sort of singing singing, going, what what were you laughing at? And I was just laughing all the way through the song. I explained what I thought was funny about it. And I would just have left, I wouldn't have thought of doing a routine about it. He took it away and made it into an amazing routine and, you know, and put all the Venn diagrams and stuff in it and really made it work. But, you know, we both had that kind of same pedantic uh, Mm -hmm. ideas, you know, so that, but, but, but it's impossible to say who created what in that. So, but I was aware that I had to kind of try and get away from that because he would just, just as I was starting to come back to stand-up, mm-hmm. Stu suddenly became the most successful stand-up sure. in, the, in the country. So that was kind of an odd place to be. So I was trying to guess, get, get away as much as possible from that. But I was just using, I think to begin with, I was just using, I was pretty frustrated and lonely and, um, you know, wondering where my life was going. So a lot of the early stuff mm-hmm. was kind of quite midlife crisis-y and, um, some of it's quite angry and unpleasant I couldn't you know some people say oh you should go back and do all your shows one every you could do you know 25 shows in 25 days all the different ones but I think mm-hmm. like a lot of those early shows I couldn't really even do them again because it's not I'm not that you know the menage and mm-hmm. uh, even though if I come 40 think it's not me anymore that person isn't mm-hmm. who I am so I've just gone with you know I've let it I've, I've sort of let where I am in my life dictate what what the personality of the show is and there's bits I think inevitably you look back at a show you did 10 years ago and go I wouldn't do that joke anymore I would, I'm embarrassed that I did that joke um, but then the me of 10 years ago thought it was a good idea to do it so I don't want to kind of say I would still defend the joke even if I don't like it now because I think that was the decision that that younger man <laughs> made about what he was trying to do so I think there was a bit there was a bit of anger and a bit of frustration and then as I got kind of more happy within myself it sort of changed so I think it's just flown with who I am so I think there is a lot more of me in it and I think a lot and a lot I think with the What Is Love anyway that story was just that show was nearly all completely true stories just told completely straight the only thing that was I mean it still came out a true thing was the thing where I said I've got off with my dry cleaners because they had a thing saying like, we love our customers I didn't get off with them but all the rest of it is <laughs> <laughs> all the rest of that is true you know but it was just a load of true stories so it's um, you know it's just it's just about I think it's just about mining myself and trying to be as honest as I can about myself I suppose is there anything that you don't mine? Is there anything that you... I don't mean sort of salacious stuff that's <laughs> off limits so much as is there anything that's, that hurts too much to talk about? Is there anything... Because, I mean, or, or does it hurt? Does, does any, is any of the process painful of letting yourself be so undignified sometimes? Yeah, yeah. It, it is. I think it's the difficult thing is just building up to do it. And so I think a lot, a lot of the better things I've done, a lot of the more successful routines I've done, I've really been resistant to do them because I'm a bit scared of either revealing something. There's a bit in maybe O Fuck on 40 where I talk about um, getting a, a blowjob off of a girl and me saying, yeah, that's right, suck my big cock. And she goes, well, average yeah. size cock. But I was, for ages, I was really couldn't bring myself to do it just because I would have to admit that I had said suck my big cock and I thought that was really embarrassing yeah. that I'd uttered that phrase. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't yeah. it? The stuff you don't want to say. Yeah. That's what we want to hear, yeah. isn't it? So, but, but then, of course, every, and I think I've realised this through all the things I've done, but certain stuff like talking cock and um, anything that's sort of slight revelatory, everyone else has the exact same stuff. You know, So yeah. everyone has these things that they're ashamed of or worried that people will find out and they're usually tiny little stupid things. They're not mm. big dark secrets, but people would be, you know, mortified if it came out. But to hear someone else talking about it—that's really we're talking cock. Just to hear someone else even discussing that an issue exists 
is so reassuring mm. to people mm. and that you can laugh at it so you don't have to go oh yeah you can allowed to laugh at it and then you can go oh thank god you know this is it's a it's a laugh of relief and it's a laugh like oh this is okay everyone's accepting this so I think there's a, there's a there's a real element where by exposing yourself in that way you a realise what you're doing isn't that bad so I think you can really harbour these wor- worries about yourself and then you realise I mean you, but you just have to look at if you even thought you were perverted you just have to look at the internet and go oh okay people want to watch this so I'm not I'm not perverted you know you, I was worried that I'd said to a girl suck my big cock oh look at the internet no I think I think on the scale of things that isn't too bad but you know I was genuinely worried about it and I, but I think the more you do it the more you lose that embarrassment and I, I think I was always open to I mean, Stu always got quite m- much more embarrassed about stuff and more worried about stuff than I did. But there were things that did em- embarrass me and he worried about. But yeah, I think, but I think you get a better grip on what is acceptable to say as well. I hope you're enjoying part two of this interview. I've only got a couple of things to say uh, pre-fringe, so I'll get right to it. I've got some Edinburgh recommendations for other people's shows. These are all fairly off-the-wall shows quite far removed from the usual straight stand-up so if you want to try something new uh, you should check out these uh, which are all personal recommendations of things I've seen that I love or they're things by people who I've seen be amazing that I'm looking forward to seeing more of um, so I was lucky enough uh, the other week to play test Nightmare Live which is uh, a live comedy version of the uh, the children's television adventure game show that some of you will be lucky enough to remember um, it's in very very funny shape Tom Bell and Paul Flannery uh, and amongst others doing, doing some really good stuff there so I'm sure that's going to be a big hit at the festival likewise The Dark Room you've probably heard me talk about The Dark Room before that's John Robertson's show the original and best interactive text based adventure game show captained by an aggressive floating head I've seen that now in different countries about seven or eight times possibly more so you mustn't miss The Dark Room Uh, Slapdash Galaxy is a junk shadow puppet clown show yeah that's a genre Uh, that is strikingly beautiful and funny and has got a properly breathtaking 3D shadow puppet finale so if you're looking for something that you will never have seen before go and see Slapdash Galaxy you won't be disappointed Um, two slightly sort of fringy or the fringe of the fringe comedians Uh, Matt Ewins is one of them with his show Once Upon a Time in the Jest Uh, Matt's show last year was one of my favourite things so I can't wait for this one a very very strange kind of quasi character comedy Um, and also Alistair Green uh, is back with a show called Alistair Green is Jack Spencer Sex Addict and that is a character show that I cannot wait to see um, because of the nature of it by which I don't mean that it's sexy it may well be sexy but uh, I think it's going to be an excellent send up of a certain uh, shall we say type of performer so uh, go and see that that's Alistair Green is Jack Spencer sex addict uh, and finally on the recommendations Slightly Fat Features which is a brilliant sort of vaudeville variety gang show that's kind of gleefully mental and riotous and it's the only show on the fringe with Arctic Tigers and it's sort of like a cross if you can imagine a cross between Cirque du Soleil and Pappies you'd be along the right lines that's done by a lot of my friends from uh, the street performing days and they're some of the most inspiring fun and aggravating people you're ever going to meet so uh, do go and see Slightly Fat Features that's on at uh, the Pleasance in Pleasance 1 huge venue so that, that should be really really good fun very atmospheric remember to check out the landing page at www.comedianscomedian.com for details of all of the currently released guests that I have on the show this fringe uh, the Comedians Comedian Live is of course on at 5.15pm daily at the Gilded Balloon and will feature I'm just going to zip through all these without explaining who they are because otherwise I'll be here all day Hal Cruttenden, Sean Hughes, Brendan Burns, David Baddiel, Greg Proops, Phil Nickel, Tony Law, Andrew Maxwell, Milton Jones, Bo Burnham, Marcus Brigstock, Will Franken, Tim Vine, Ed Burns, Susan Kalman, Al Murray, Sarah Millican, Rob Delaney, and Claudia O'Doherty has just been added to that lineup as well, plus a good few more that we're confirming at this very moment. Finally, send me an email or a tweet with your favourite quote from your favourite episode. Any things that have particularly stood out in your mind. A good example, the one that I always think of, is Dan Evans in episode two saying, sometimes I look at the audience and think these people are just ants that turn food into shit. What are your favourites? I, w- I want your favourites for some sticker advertising during the Fringe. Uh, let me know your favourites. I'll set to plastering them all over the city, but not in the shape of cocks. When you tweet me, at ComComPod, uh, if you listen to this is a bit of audience research now very lastly if you listen to all of the episodes tweet me with the hashtag floozy 
And if you mainly listen to acts that you already know or that you've already seen before, tweet me with the hashtag choosy. So it's hashtag floozy or choosy. And uh, just let me know and I'd be, I'd be interested in your, your listening habits. So that's all the stuff. Comedianscomedian.com for all of, the, uh, all of the guest information and links to tickets. Now, back to Richard. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Karen. Do you have elements, uh, do you recognise elements of stand-up that are beyond your reach? Do you see people, do you see other acts doing certain things and going, oh, I wish, I've just never been very good at doing that? Um, well, I guess. I mean, I, sort, I think with comedy, again, as I've got older, I sort of feel like um, you want to have kind of the whole palette of all the different kinds of stuff. I'm not very good at, uh, you know, I couldn't do a whole show of one-liners and I kind of mm-hmm. uh, admire up to an extent the people who can do that. <laughs> kind of, you know, I think it's amazing to me. If you can come up with really good one-liners, then that are original and and that is an amazing skill that I don't think I could ever have you know if I write one one line joke a year I'm very very happy with that and it's usually still three lines mm-hmm. um, but if I can write just a, a quick gag I'm, I'm pretty happy so but I, but I sort of think it's really easy to sort of think well this kind of comedy is good and all the other kind of comedies are bad or you know doing this kind of broad comedy or doing puns is bad or whatever I actually think I'd really like to get to a stage where I can have a crack at most of it to some extent and I, and I think in the in the broad range of doing a good comedy show that if I do an unexpected pun that's good it's so unusual that actually that would be pretty you know that would be pretty funny because it's yeah. because it's and I, and I don't think it's a bad thing to draw in your audience with a little bit of stuff that you think and the danger is you can go and go oh no that joke's a bit hack or that joke's a bit obvious or that joke but actually sometimes you can you can wrong foot people by doing a joke like that but also you can draw in some of the the people who might go oh, you know, I'm not sure about this guy you give them a couple of yeah. slightly easier jokes and then you can hit them with something else or slightly different jokes so I just think I think I'm becoming a little sort of less snobbish about comedy okay. and, um, and therefore I, I sort of want to have a go at most of it yeah I think I'd struggle to do anything like Jimmy Carr or um uh, Jack Gary Delaney does they'll do so well um, but uh, I mean you know, and someone like you look at someone like Daniel Kitson you kind of think this is another level that would be hard to get to but I, but I think it's really good to have those people there not to you know to, not to emulate or copy but just to have that level there that you're thinking oh, oh, that's mm. the that's how far you can go with this so uh, you know, do you ever do you ever suffer from the the common thing that comedians suffer from when they watch Daniel Kitson and they go, oh god, what's the point? Yeah, well, you do. You sort of do feel that, but then I think you also think that's something to. Avoid. I remember one of the early gigs I did. I saw um, Reginald D. Hunter come on, seeming a little bit drunk or stoned, and uh, and just talk really in a quiet voice to the audience about some stuff that had just happened, and it mm. really looked like he'd made the whole thing up. Mm. He might not have done. But I just thought that would be amazing. At that stage, I was very scripted, and I thought that's what I really want to do as a stand-up. I want to be able to go on stage and just talk and be funny for an hour without having anything prepped. 
and you know but I've sort of got to the stage where I can get close to doing that I mean usually with someone else I would do now mm-hmm. I do all the, but all the podcasts I do are completely unscripted and you tell stories and it's that sort of thing and it, it okay. comes out okay so. I would always assume that the, the pre the pre guest stand up bits that you've done in the past have been They're, scripted or is uh, that not much a little bit okay. I've usually got like an I've got an idea of what I'm going to say but okay. I don't write I don't write the jokes I just kind mm. of see what comes out but yeah I mean more more so you know or with the Andrew Collins things we would talk for an hour and literally not I wouldn't he sometimes would prepare subject matter okay like, but you wouldn't take in topics no, no no okay so uh, we would just talk but I, but I haven't done it as a solo stand up so I think you just it's good to have something to aim for you know and it's that seemed impossible to me then the idea that someone could come on and be that relaxed and that confident they could talk and it just had really you know it was he just talked in this really quiet way so everyone was gripped and mm. had to listen to him but they did want to listen to him and he was interesting and um and funny as well so that's that was something I kind of wanted to do so I think seeing people do something amazing should hopefully although it does part of make you go ah oh. but <laughs> it also should make you go that, well there's there's places to go there's places to climb and even Daniel Kitson who I don't think has anyone above him at all actually but he has to keep on creating finding that himself <laughs> otherwise I think you just you've got to keep pushing and try, try to mm. get better and I think that, I really think that's the key to it is to realise so I guess that's what I was trying to get at earlier you know it's just that however good you think you are you can always be better and even if you are really good you can still be better and you should be striving to to get better and I think that, and I suppose that not being too successful not getting drawn into the, all the other trappings and taken out of it means that you're more likely to to push yourself to do something more interesting have you have you been in a uh because of your work writing and then consequently earning the money to yeah. buy the house have you uh, have you been in a position presumably where you're, you're, you can afford to take risks well I think I, yeah I think the problem with actually the thing I've found with having any kind of security is it makes you really uh, podgy and complacent and you think what's the point so every time I've actually had any money, I've just spent it. Okay. Because I, yeah. Deliberately, as a yeah, strategy. Yeah. Well, because that's why I bought this. I bought a house that's too, that was too big. It, there was okay. a point when I, there was a couple of years at the early point of having this house. It's a nice house that I thought I'm going to have to move out because I can't, I'm not earning enough money to sustain the mortgage. So it was a big mortgage. And then I got, then I got through that. And then I got to the point a couple of years ago where I was getting this thing like, oh, actually, you know, I'm close to owning this house. So then I spent some money renovating that. So it's, again, it's not a bad position to be in. You've got, you've still got the security of having a house so I can move and move to a flat and and be secure. So there's a security there. But I I found the, I suppose, you know, not having to fret about where your next meal is coming from and that sort of stuff does mean, yeah, you can sort of go, well, I'll take some time doing this. I guess if I was poor or I had no money, then the initial decision to sort of spend five years doing podcasts that aren't paid might have seemed like a weird one to me. Mm -hmm. But but I think think comedians, I think most, because we, both Stu and I came from very much a writing background and we were writing, you know, we came to London and we wrote for three or four years on radio shows and we wrote hours and hours of radio Mm. in the first three or four years we were doing. And most stand-ups were just, in the day, were sitting around playing video games and smoking weed and then go and do their 20 minutes of... Sure. And we were, we had a very strong work ethic, I guess, in terms of okay. writing. And I, and I guess that's why I feel like if I'm not writing in the day, that I'm wasting the day. And sometimes it's hard to remember that what I do at night is a job. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard work, and it's much harder work than you kind of think it would be. Like, so, you know, doing those less square theatre podcasts for two hours is so draining mm-hmm. and exhausting um, in front of an audience. Um, so sometimes you forget that the day, the, the nighttime stuffs uh, work. But so I, you know, I think um, I can't quite remember where I was going. But uh, but I, I felt like you know you got to you got to make the most of all your day. But but obviously having some security means that you can yeah play snooker against yourself and you know and no then certain knowledge that that is not going to really make sure. you any money anytime soon uh, or or just uh, and see where you go with stuff. But I think with it, as a comedian you've got to take risks. And even if you and I've been a poor comedian. Uh, uh, and a poor comedian I've been a comedian without funds and it's still like much much better than working and it's still you've still got a lot of time the fact if you've got no money you've got even more time to sit down and and you've literally got hunger to <laughs> to write so you've got all did that you ever, did, did any part of you feel like you should be doing a proper job Did you have you ever stopped and thought oh yeah you know, what what am I doing? Okay, okay, I've I've nailed this in terms of my ability to support myself by dicking around. Yeah. Effectively, I know it feels very odd. I mean, my my family were very. My dad's. Oh, they're all teachers, and sure. my, you know, and my family 
my dad's got this very strong ethic of work and decency and it felt really the first couple of years where I was not having to even do any temp work or anything else Mm. to begin we were doing little jobs but not very much and then we just actually just took the leap and thought fuck it I'll have no money and just make this work somehow but the first couple of years of just being allowed to go on the tube in the daytime when people were at proper work I felt like this awful mixture of guilt and excitement and feeling like yeah. this is so yeah. this is so wrong and I still get it I still get it a little bit but it's easy to sort of forget that so those days when you're sitting at home watching TV or just failing or just too hungover or just too tired to write and you're feeling terrible you know that's still what a fucking luxury to spend uh, you know even if it ended tomorrow I've spent 25 years, <laughs> 25 years of my life not having to go it's, it's only to right work. that now you go to a salt <laughs> yeah. yeah so you know I do I completely appreciate it and I have done I have done jobs and I know you know I know how awful that is but it, once, you, once you get used to it and it's so great being your own boss and it's so great there's a lot of downside to it and, and you know and I took made a lot of sacrifices and I didn't have any money for for 10 or 15 years at all and, and didn't have any kind of social life or mm. married life or you know I was sort of flitting around it was very it's kind of very hard to get into proper relationships and stuff so you've given away a lot to get what you've got but then you can yeah. you know you can do all of those things and still <laughs> still mm. be okay just to go back briefly to the the subject of other um of other comics and sort of other other comedy styles and things like that. Just the, the flip side of the coin I should have asked before is, is there anything you see that you can't stand? I'm not asking you to name names, <laughs> but in terms of styles or tropes or certain things that people do. I mean, I just, I, li- I like it. I, 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 I almost respect or anyone who can make a living out of this job, nearly. And there are a few exceptions, but I think, it, I think if you're able to do this job and keep working, people keep paying to see you and you keep making them laugh, then you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do, I, I'm much more personally into people who are doing something original so I don't like I just don't like the much more form- in stand-up there's a lot of very formulaic stand-up that I think mm-hmm. you you just go this is you know you can just see the same basic act over and over again you kind of think well why if you're doing this job why not try and do your own joke you know so you're hit- I mean also I think when you see comics doing jokes that people are doing on Twitter mm-hmm. that, that, that civilians are doing on Twitter mm-hmm. you kind of think you shouldn't. That shouldn't be part of your act because mm. that is, you know, if a, if a person can think of that, joke, <laughs> then that's that. Why are you going on stage telling? You know, so I saw someone last night. I think doing. Uh, well, let's say it was. It probably wasn't this one, but let's say it was the Andy Murray is is he's British because he won and not Scottish, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that joke is so well worn, and you know, mm-hmm. and you kind of think, well, what, how could you put that in your act? How could you put it in your stand-up act? It's, you, you must know that I've ever done that. So I think anything that any anyone who's trying to do something original or groundbreaking, uh, or even just you know, someone who can take those formulas and twist them on their head, someone like Booby Graffo does lots of those formulate jokes but in such a way that even a comedian can't spot what's going to happen yeah, next. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what, if, you, if you're artful with it, it sort of is, there are a lot of jokes are just magic tricks and if you know the trick you can make it work and you can adapt it to different situations. It's a very similar thing but if you can actually fool comedians with your pullback and reveal joke by making it good enough that the, the, the feed line is a brilliant joke in itself and then you, put, and then you surprise people and, and that's made basically what comedy is. It's just about surprising people with something that's near to its essence. So, you know, I think there are ways to still do entertaining stuff and I don't have a problem with people like McIntyre. Um, to a lesser extent, I have a bit of a problem with Peter Kay but, but McIntyre does what he does and it's a really difficult thing to do that kind of mm. observational comedy in a way that a mass audience is still going to find it funny and to be it found your own little niche and it's such a well mined area that for anyone to find their own little area in it and make it successful and keep doing that for years is very, really impressive I, I guess just, what, what, what's different about Peter Kay just it's slightly again I think it's slightly he does in a very charming way and he's an amazing performer to me it feels like he's got a lot of talent under there that he's just not really using because when you see some of his written stuff you go oh there's a lot more to you than this mm. but he's doing stuff that you I would say I'd expect to hear from my friends if I went to the pub and they go do you remember that TV show yeah sure. and it'd be really entertaining to do that with your friends so he's taking on that kind of role when I think there's more to him and I just feel he's um, I don't I, I think it's um, I mean you know I know I've done a couple of my, my old shows again but I, I think it's when you feel like someone's just peddling out the same mm. thing for too long mm. 
and just resting on your laurels a bit but that's what I mean if you earned 30 million pounds last year it'd be pretty hard to buy a lot of laurels laurels. do you want to come out to knock two bang and do five minutes no I think I'll stay in my palace and you know Mm. quail's eggs uh, but <laughs> which I imagine <laughs> uh, but you know I still have a lot of admiration for him because I think it's really difficult to become that that successful comedian and be that populist I don't, I don't have a problem being popular you know Morecambe and Wise are probably my, one of my favourite comedy acts and they're the most popular comedy act in the country and they were brilliant so mm-hmm. they, you know, I think you can be both um, but yeah it's just it's just unoriginality I just can't understand why you I can't understand why you would take this job do this job and then just trot out stuff that that anyone could do and that other people do do um, uh, but I, I think you've got to keep an open mind about stuff I think it's very easy to you know just be dismissive of stuff and the minute you're with comedy the minute what's quite amazing about Jack Carroll doing well on Britain's Got Talent is that's the least comedy friendly environment you get because it's a room full of people as you're coming on sitting there going come on then be funny which is yeah. impossible and obviously it's like disarming that this is a, a young disabled lad He's 14 years old, which helps, and he's a disabled lad, which means it's hard to be, can you fucking come here yeah, yeah. are? But he's very, very good as well, which makes a big difference. But that's a very hard environment to be good at. If, you, if you're coming into a situation and an audience doesn't want to laugh at you, mm. that's a very hard thing to come into. So I think it's, it's about opening up your preconceptions and kind of allowing stuff in. But I mean, that, you know, I don't... There's kind of br- the, the, this sort of broad comedy, this broad 1970s comedy that seems to be coming back into vogue, I feel it's a bit... A bit disappointing, just in terms of uh, just something a throwback, and not in a very, not in a very uh, imaginative way. I think they again have a saw business brands for these. The first time I saw it, I really hated, and the second or third time I saw it, I sort of had a grudging admiration for him. <laughs> I guess there's a there's an element where um, acts are stealing other people's material, which he does he does a little bit certainly mm-hmm. in the early series, which I don't okay. like. Well, he does uh, he does joke, you know, he does joke almost public arena jokes gotcha but, okay. you know, pet, but some of them are other people's jokes in the early in the early days anyway uh, so I don't like that but so, you know even that I think there's something in it if, if people have worked that hard and that, that's you can they've really worked hard to build up that that franchise and that idea um, and as much as it's not my kind of thing I kind of admire the, them for doing that and it's mm-hmm. interesting that that's what it's taken you know, it's taken someone to do his own thing for 10 years and then to be taken mm-hmm. on TV mm-hmm. yeah. so there's a lot of positives you can take out of that sure uh, but it sort of you know seems uh, that, that seems a bit odd but yeah what, what do you anticipate happening from comedy over the next 5, 10, 15 years do you perceive there's a, there's a crisis in it do you perceive there's too much uh, supply for the available demand you know I think I think um, there probably is too much supply. I think it all it just goes in ebbs and flows. It's just hawks and doves, isn't it? It's just that's a, that's a pretty much everything in the world works on that principle. If there are too many hawks, then they, the hawks die out because there aren't enough doves to feed them, and then there become okay. too many doves, and then the du- then there aren't enough. You know, then the, hawk the hawks recover. Yeah. yeah. So it's just it just goes back and forth. It's a pendulum thing, and I don't think you know the, the thing is if it gets to the point where ten thousand people are trying to do comedy, there aren't enough venues to do it, and there aren't mm. enough people to pay for it, so that will some of those people will drop out and some of the people will realise that actually you can't become a multi-millionaire in two mm-hmm. years. Uh, so those kind of people will fall away. I think, I think it's incredibly healthy. I think you can concentrate on different aspects of it and make it look like anything you want it to look like. Uh, I think the, the sort of alternative side of the circuit is so strong. Uh, and again, despite what Stuart Lee says, he's on TV, he's got two shows on TV that, you know, that, that um, showcase this kind of comedy. Uh, so that's pretty incredible in itself. Right. That, that, that you don't need a big agent to get on TV because there he is on TV, and there's his, there, there's his, and these more alternative people on TV. But I think that that's that's really interesting. I think the podcasting stuff, the make your own stuff, is really exciting and interesting way to go. Um, I think it will just become easier and easier for people to make their own stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think people will start to find ways to make money out of it directly if they need to. But I don't think you even need to make it directly. I think you'll make it eventually. Uh, I think people, you know, if you just create good stuff and you create a demand, then you will make money eventually if, you, if you're good. Um, so I think that can actually shut people up because you can't sit at home going, oh, well, if, I, if only they put me on TV, I'd be doing a brilliant TV show because you can actually do it yourself. So yeah. you can do, certainly can do a radio show on your own. You and I can make a radio show now with our two recorders. Yeah. 
and uh, it would be uh, it would be fine. It would sound okay. So uh, you know, that, I think that freedom and that autonomy is really exciting. I think TV will become less important because I think we'll, the way we ingest media will be about which is already happening. Really, you know, it's mm. downloads, mm. it's Netflix, it's this, it's that. It's not when you're not actually sitting around a TV waiting for something to come on. It's just there'll be all these different ways of viewing things but it's hard to know what really young how really young people will want to ingest comedy and that's how it changes so if young people decide they're not going to pay for anything or then you know then then that that model of stuff won't work or if uh, just they decide to do something other than watch TV I don't I used to watch TV all the time and mm. then now I don't really watch it I watch mm. DVDs sometimes take something off the TV but mainly I'm on the computer ingesting stuff through the computer. So it's it, just the way, it's very hard to say what it'll be like in 10 years' time because 10 years ago you could not have anticipated what we're no, doing now. No, absolutely. So absolutely. who knows what it'll be in 10 years' time. But I think you know, the, the, the basic cheapness of doing all of this stuff, uh, the thing, doing these things I'm doing with Go Faster Strike, I think someone more, again, more ambitious and could take this a long way. I, I, I feel it's similar to the boom in the movie business in um, 1910s mm-hmm. uh, and the sort of Charlie Chaplin thing if you could get someone who understands the internet well enough that they could become the reason the way Charlie Chaplin became became a millionaire almost immediately because everyone was paying one pence to go to the cinema to see these new films mm-hmm. if you, it's exactly the same you know you get 100,000 listeners if they all pay you ten pounds a year to do something you're, you're a millionaire so, yeah. <laughs> so um, and I think I think if people start to see it that way, and I think they might do, um, that you know people can start to you know create their own little media empires and do their own thing. And so I think someone a bit younger than me with a bit more of a hunger to become a, a someone rich. I think I think you can become very rich doing this if you've got the talent to do it. Uh, then you know I think someone could really sort of blow it wide open. But but I think. You know, just the very idea that Netflix is and some of these other companies are making their own TV yeah. shows. Yeah. Because and then they're, all they're doing is giving people the money to make their what they want to do and then putting on their thing. Uh, that's very exciting. Um, so I, I just think. Convention. Have you are you going to approach those sorts? of I've sort of been things? trying to. Yeah, I mean, a couple of my DVDs, my live DVDs, are on Netflix, and I thought they'd be. I think they're just a bit inundated with stuff. I thought I, I was if Netflix would say. You know, they don't even have to give me very much money, to be honest. Mm. If they said, if they came through the autumn, they could... I'd, I wouldn't like to say how much it is, just in case they're listening. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be, you know, they could probably give me... If that, if that happened that way, then that's another way of doing it, isn't it? So then that's... Uh, but I, but again, I sort of, I do... The, the people say, oh, would you be sponsored for stuff? And, and I might be, if the right thing came along. But I also really... I would love to be able to do this just with the with the uh, the aid of the people at home you know mm. so it really is just a kind of democratic mm. well not even kind of democratic because it can still be a minority a tiny minority of people but it just means they're in control of whether this exists or not and if it's good enough and they like it it'll continue to exist if they're happy to give a small amount of money to it but it's you know you're talking about a cup of coffee you're saying mm. let's uh, rather than going to Starbucks to this afternoon give me that money and I'll make a TV show for you and if enough people did that, if people thought of it that way, then you know they're, they're happy to pay three pounds for a cup of coffee, but not happy to pay three pounds for th- an hour and a half of entertainment. So it's just about switching people's brains a little bit and making them think about that. And I think if I think what I've got with the is I think that the people who listen to my stuff trust me, know that I'm honest about it, and know that I'm not trying to rip them off. And I can understand that you'll be, well, what if there there's some scam involved in this, or what if you know. Mm-hmm. But they know. I think they know. I'm upfront about it, and it's not. And they trust me that I'm interested in making the stuff wrong because they know that I've done it. Because they, I spent five years making the stuff without them asking them for a penny. So I think if you know, if I can just convince people to come around to that myself, then that's a different way of doing things. So uh, you know, I, I think it's very exciting. I think it's, I, and I think it's Mark, Michael McIntyre and that lot, and all those, you know, these. But she's talking about um, <laughs> people with agents have stitched up the entertainment industry as if the people with agents are just some chumps off the street who've mm. walked in off the, the people who've got agents and big management behind them are great comedians who've been snapped yeah. up by agents they're all good yeah. as far yeah. as I can see so it's not like it's a trick or there's some kind of sure. elite it's just that some good people are being represented by people there may be an element where TV selects certain types of people and mm-hmm. that's a bit unfair on other types of people uh, but that, that's that's something but you know it's there's it's 
it's good that Michael McIntyre's Roadshow exists, just as it's good that Stuart Lee's whatever his Comedy Central thing's called exists, because you know you, you get a variety of all these different stuff, and it's only Michael McIntyre is only the same as Des O'Connor or and Jimmy Tarbuck, you know, in comedy terms. Was in the nineteen seventies. You know, there was that. There was that kind of comedian. Then there was. In the seventies, you were sort of getting Billy Connolly and Jasper Carrot and stuff on the outskirts of it. And the nineteen eighties, you had this different group of people. It, that the whole point of that alternative stuff is that it's never going to be massively mainstream. So it's that, that but it's a, there's a really vibrant, exciting scene going on there. I think, and uh, you know, I think Edinburgh it, it's expanding much too much. Edinburgh and something's going to burst. And it's last year was very difficult for everyone in the middle. Mm. Um, but then it will just adapt, and that's why I don't. I'm not one of those people who looks back and goes, "Oh." And I think Stu is one of those people who looks back. Stu kind of wants to be. He wishes he hadn't gone to Oxford, and he was. Okay. Um, he, he was in the 1980s alternative comedy boom, and he wants the whole world to still be like that, which is fine. And what he's doing is great. <laughs> but I think I think it's great that Edinburgh changes, and I think it will change and it will ebb and flow as it's meant to do. And things will come and things will go, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't want to sit there and go, "Oh, Edinburgh was much better in 1987 when I was 19. It was great <laughs> then. You could get drunk every night, kiss girl, uh, because things change. You no, know, you change as well as the place. But I don't, I don't think it's if things. Some things become more corporate, and loads of things have become much less corporate. So the, the free fringe is is more is more alternative than anything we were doing in the early 90s so that's an amazing thing and there's the stand there if you want to go to the stand so there's much more choice so it's it's a great thing and and the things that are good and the things that people will like and find out about will get through like loads of good people will not get what they deserve you know that that's what you've got to realize it's not it, it <laughs> that was that was beginning to sound like a very optimistic message not, at the end <laughs> well, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like fair but i think it's not a fair system so someone who is really good as a stand-up but also they might be good to stand up and not any good on TV so it's not sure. the two things are different skills there's every chance that someone could have you know just not get spotted and give up or not get spotted and carry on and not, still not get spotted I think if you, you up your odds of being successful if you just keep battling on and keep going and also you become much better and the longer you can leave being discovered and getting onto TV is actually the better except that TV tends to spit young people yeah. but I think increasingly I think increasingly they won't I think also increasingly as the, as the population gets older there'll be much more room for older comics as well because be, there's going to be there's actually less young people and loads of old people are going to be in this position where there's lots of pensioners and, and a massive generation of pensioners that's what's going to fuck the country up basically that's why the NHS can't really survive mm. is because there's going to be just ton, thousands and thousands of old people and no one to look after them we need Someone was saying, so a doctor was saying that actually without immigration there's going to be a whole generation of old people with nobody to look after them if we don't have if we don't have it the people who are prepared to come in our country and actually do some work the immigrants will come in and look after them so ironically all these kind of old <laughs> BNP UK people <laughs> will be looked after by Polish people and Nigerian people uh, because there'll be no one in our country because there aren't enough young people so that that's going to skew everything as well so you know you can't really you can't guess what the future will bring but I think it, I think the change is good and it's great that they're I, I, I you know I sort of in a way fear for someone who would be like me starting up now go how do you get discovered how do you break through how do you do stuff but I think it's and we had a very in a way we had a very easy ride through that and um, it was sort of easy there were less people doing it but then the fact there are more people doing it I, I, I wish Lee and Herring had had another five years before we were on TV really Right. I think I think if we probably wouldn't have carried on working for each other that long, but I, you know I think if we'd had five more years, a I'd have appreciated what you know. I, we had this amazing thing, yeah, four BBC Two series. Uh, it just felt like the you know that's what was normal that that should happen. So I didn't really appreciate what what we had. I look back at it, it doesn't feel like me even. Um, and I think with another five years, we'd have been a bit more experienced. We'd have done a bit better in working at how the shows could go together bit less adventurous maybe and just we just tried to cram everything into these we could have made that material last for a lot longer uh, and uh, and so it's not a bad thing that you're forced to fight your way through the competition I don't think um, but it's hard it makes it hard but then it's it's a hard job this year it's a, hard, it's a very hard thing to, to make a living at and it's a very hard thing to be discovered and it's quite hard to be good at so it's not a bad thing if there's lots of competition and the, the, the people who are you know, uh, hungry for it, a force to get through, I suppose. Great. Okay. Not That'll do us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
So that's all for now. I'm very grateful to Richard for being so frank and taking so much time out to talk to me when he had some very important snooker to be getting along with. Thanks also to Ben Lund Conlon, who, as you know, is acting as head skivvy for the podcast and doing lots of boring, uh, painful, dull, repetitive, time-consuming tasks very, very efficiently. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, as ever, to Graham Cropford and Dan Melrose, comedianscomedian.com, for all of the Ed Fringe listings for this show. Uh, I do hope you'll come and see it. I will talk to you, I think, once more before we get to the fringe. So I'll speak to you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.